The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading um, is Judges 10:6 through 12:7. Um, I will be reading the very end of the passage, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. I'll give you some time to open your Bibles. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over, with you, over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the, Gile the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word and that you did not just speak it when you inspired it, but you speak now by your spirit. I pray that you would do so that you would wield our text this morning like the sword that it is, use it to cut with conviction and to heal with comfort. We pray that you would do this in a way that helps us to see and reflect Jesus more. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 10. This is going to be, we've been going through a series in the book of Judges, and this is going to be part one on this massive passage, which is the majority of chapter 10, all of 11, and the first part of chapter 12. And, and this outlines for us the tragic story of the fifth major judge that we encounter in this book. We've seen Othniel, we've seen Ehud, we've seen Barak Deborah, we've seen Gideon, and now we get judge number five, major judge number five, Jephthah. And we will take two weeks on him. And I actually want to begin with the end of his story. It's the passage that you just heard read, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. You can look at that first. Because this, this part of the story is so interesting to me because it comes after what feels like the climactic conclusion of Jephthah's story. We're going to see next week this really tragic moment 
where Jephthah literally sacrifices his own child. But after that, we get this bizarre kind of bonus scene that just compounds the tragedy. What we see right here in Judges 12, 1 through 7, is one of the tribes of Israel, the hot-headed Ephraimites. They're offended because Jephthah didn't call them out to fight with him. Jephthah had this big battle against the Ammonites and the Ephraimites are like, why didn't we get to play too? We've actually seen them do this exact thing before, if you can remember. Back to Judges chapter 8, after Gideon had his big battle, uh, the Ephraimites showed up and were like, Gideon, why, why didn't you call us out to fight with you? And you remember, Gideon got very diplomatic, buttered them up, talked them down. That's not what Jephthah does. They're like, Jephthah, why didn't you call us out to fight? He's like, I did. They're like, nah-uh. He's like, yeah-huh. They're like, nah-uh. He's like, yeah-huh. And they fight like the brothers that they are. Civil war erupts. Do you see the darkness of Judges deepening right here, Shades? We've talked about this over and over again throughout this series. Judges is the darkest book in the Bible, and the deeper we go into it, the darker it gets. From chapter 8, where we saw the Ephraimites get upset, ah, that kind of settled down. But here... It gets deeper. It gets darker. Civil war erupts. It's not much of a war, not even much of a battle, because Jephthah whips the Ephraimites' tail, and he won't even let them escape. Jephthah and his troops, they set up at the fords of the Jordan, and they're, they're guarding the Ephraimite escape route. The Ephraimites, they, they could escape back over the Jordan into their homeland, but they set up camp right there. And any time one of these Ephraimite fugitives shows up trying to get back home, Jephthah's army is like, hey, you an Ephraimite? And they go, no, I'm not. And they go, okay. And they came up with this clever little linguistic test, a shibboleth. Do you, do you know what a shibboleth is? Heard that, heard that term before you look it up? In the dictionary, a shibboleth is something, the Hebrew word just means flowing stream, but we use it today to mean something that distinguishes you as belonging to a certain group. Like, like a shibboleth could be like a particular way of dressing or a way of talking or, or a geographical location. It could be, could be a way of thinking and, and seeing the world, but it's a distinguishing mark. It's some dead giveaway as to whether or not you belong. That modern meaning of the term comes from the way the word is used right here in Judges 12, verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. When any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth, flowing stream. And he said, Shibboleth? For he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. Apparently, you could tell what part of the country somebody was from based upon how they pronounced Shibboleth. We have words like that, don't we? I don't know if we've got anybody that's not from the South, but I'm betting there's a couple of ways we could figure it out. Like if you said the word roof, yeah, rough, uh-huh, that's what the dog says. That's not what's on top of the house. Or you said the word car or bag, or we could tell if you're from the really far north, if you're from Canada, if you say the word about, a boot, whatever. Anyway, you get... You get the point. Uh, the way that we pronounce things has been shaped by the people to whom we belong. 
And more than that, more than just the way that we talk, our entire lives, the way we think, the way we dress, the way we interact, like our lives have been shaped by belonging to a people. And just like the Ephraimites right here, Shades, we can confess whatever we want to. We can say whatever we want about who we belong to or don't belong to, but the realities of our lives will reveal whether or not our confession is false. Ultimately, we will not be able to hide who we've been shaped by. Maybe for a little while behind a false confession, but there's going to be a shibboleth that's going to rat you out. I think that that's why this bizarre story serves as the conclusion to Jephthah's judge cycle. Because through it, we see a, a picturesque summary of what God is doing. What God's doing throughout the entirety of this judge cycle. Namely, God is asking his people to say Shibboleth. Like, Israel, in this story, is going to claim to belong to God. So God goes, say Shibboleth. Let me see the realities of your life reveal who you've been shaped by, who you truly belong to. Israel, have you been shaped by the culture of God's kingdom or have you been shaped by the culture of the Canaanites, the kingdom that surrounds you? Which kingdom do you really belong to? Say Shibboleth, Israel, and see. You can't hide what you've been shaped by. Shades. Shades, we need to heed the truths that we're going to see in Judges 10 to 12 because it's going to ask us to do the exact same thing. Say Shibboleth. Can, can we say Shibboleth? In, in other words, to put it explicitly, we can claim all we want to be the people of Christ. But what do the realities of our lives reveal about that confession? What have we been shaped by? The, the Jephthah cycle is like a mirror. It's here to help us see, to see our, ourselves and see if we have been shaped by the culture of Christ's kingdom or if we have been shaped by the culture that surrounds us. This cycle helps us see whether or not we can say shibboleth. Dive into it with me. Turn to Judges 10. Judges 10, we're gonna start in verse six. It says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We've seen them do this all throughout the book of Judges. They again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. We've seen this before. We, we know how every major judge cycle begins. It's a cycle. It's got the same six steps. You remember? Rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue, rest, repeat. But here, in Jetha's cycle, we're only going to get the first three of those things. Rebellion, which we're seeing right here. We're going to get wrath. We're going to get regret, but by the time we get to rescue, it's going to be different than anything we've ever seen before. And we will get no rest at the end, and we won't get a repetition because this is the end. Yeah, we got one more major judge to go, Samson. Samson is occurring simultaneously with Jephthah. This introduction actually serves as an introduction to both of those stories. 
We'll see that clearly in just, in just a moment. Everything we've seen in Judges Shades right here, it's climaxing. Everything after Samson's just fallout. Everything is, is climaxing. And we see that right here with rebellion. Something's different. We've seen rebellion described before, but here we get more detail. Did you notice we get a sevenfold list? I counted them for you. If you were looking at your Bible, you didn't see it. I was, I was counting my fingers. We, we get a sevenfold list of the false gods that the people served. Seven is perhaps the most significant symbolic number in all of Scripture, and it's symbolic for completion. In other words, we are seeing the complete canonization of God's people. When I say canonization, I just mean they're becoming exactly like the culture that surrounds them. Judges is a book that serves as a warning about this. We've talked about this since the very beginning of our series. Judges is a book that serves as a warning and a witness. It's, it's a warning about how easily God's people can spiral downward into the darkness. And it's a witness about the beauty of God's grace that shines at its brightest even there. And right here, we are seeing that warning come to a climax. Here is how God's people spiral downward into the darkness. They, they don't look like God's people anymore. They look exactly like the culture around them. This is the complete canonization of God's people. They've become exactly like the Canaanite culture that surrounds them. They've embraced every last one of their culture's gods. Everything their culture values, their culture worships, their culture sets up as an idol, they've embraced it all. And in verse 7, God responds to this total rebellion with total righteous wrath. Look at it. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and the hand of the Ammonites. I told you this scene of rebellion and wrath right here serves as an introduction to both Jephthah and to Samson that we'll see in a few weeks. We get that right here because we see what God is doing. He's selling his people into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. The Philistines are a coastal people. They're, they're to Israel's west. The Ammonites are to Israel's east. God is surrounding his people. His wrath is total and and his wrath literally surrounds his people. Through Jephthah, we're going to zoom in on the eastern conflict with the Ammonites. And then in a few weeks, we will zoom in on Samson and the western conflict with the Philistines. But right here, everything is coming to a climax. The people's rebellion, they're completely Canaanized. God's wrath completely surrounds his people. Do you feel the darkness deepening? But shades, I've told you, I've told you throughout this entire series that the deeper this darkness gets, the brighter we see the light of God's grace and the gospel shine forth. Judges isn't just a warning, it's also a witness. And right here, right here, through the people's regret, we are gonna get a glimpse of the completely, totally overwhelming nature of God's grace. Look at it with me, verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, 
from the Ammonites and from the Philistines and the Sidonians also, the Amalekites and the Minoites, when they oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. That's a sevenfold list of salvation. What shades do you see? In, in response to Israel's sevenfold, total rebellion, God has lavished upon them sevenfold, total rescue, grace upon grace upon grace. If grace is an ocean, Israel's sinking. But the question becomes, has God's grace finally run out? Because if you keep reading, that's kind of what it feels like in verse 13. Look at it with me. God says, yet, so I've saved you all these times, yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Is God's grace running out? No. He is calling his people out for their false repentance. That's, that's what's happening right here. He is, he is looking at them and saying, say Shibboleth. You claim to belong to me. But does the way you're repenting even reveal that you're actually mine? What, do, what does the way you're repenting even reveal? Shades, the Ephraimites, we talked about right at the beginning, they claimed to belong to Jephthah's people, but the way they spoke revealed their true citizenship. And right here, Israel and us, Shades, we can claim to belong to God, to be his people, but what does the way we worship reveal? True citizenship isn't revealed through the way you speak, but through the way you worship. You can speak however you want, claim whatever you want, confess whatever you want. True citizenship is gonna show up in the way that you express faith, the way that you repent, the way that you worship. That's precisely what we see in verse 15. Look at it. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, when he says he's not gonna save them anymore, this is how they respond. We've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Shades, don't be fooled by what the people say right here. Do, do to us whatever seems good to you. That is a false humility aimed at manipulating God into giving them what they really want, immediate rescue. That's the very next thing they say. They don't really mean do whatever you think is good. That's a false humility to press a button in order to get what they're actually after. They say, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. It's a bargaining tactic. Now we see what they're really after. Not God and returning to God. They're only after what God can give. That's manipulative and it's not real faith. Tim Keller says it best. I was actually... Um, I didn't even plan to say this. I'm going to do this as an aside. I don't know if you heard uh, the news, but Keller actually passed away on Friday from pancreatic cancer. It, everybody's known it's been coming for a long time. I was writing this on Friday uh, and already written this part when I heard um, that he had passed. 
And if you're not familiar with Dr. Keller, you should be. Read his works, listen to his sermons. He has had an incredible impact and will continue to do so, even this morning in this room. Because listen to how he faithfully points us to Jesus. Tim Keller says this best. He says, if we say to God, I want you because I want you to give me X. Whatever X is, fill in the blank. Here it's immediate rescue. Whatever it is for you. I want you because I want you to give me X. We reveal that X is our real ultimate God. But when we say, I want you, regardless of whether or not you give me X, then we're making the true God our God again. That's not what the people are doing here. Again, Keller, speaking about this text, he says the people are treating God as if he is one of their idols. They're trying to push the right buttons, make the right sacrifices, say the right things in order to get him to exert his power for them. In other words, shades, the people can't say shibboleth because they don't belong to God's kingdom. So they cannot speak properly the language of worship. They have been canonized and it has shaped the way that they worship. It doesn't matter what they say or what they claim or what they confess. Their true citizenship is not revealed through the way that they speak, but through the way that they worship. They can't say shibboleth, can we? Like that's, here comes the mirror of Judges 10 to 12, trying to help us see our, ourselves. This is where we need to see the first of four realities about canonization, about becoming just like the culture that surrounds us. I told you this is a two-part sermon, so you're only going to get the first two of our four realities this morning. So, number one, reality number one, as people are canonized, in other words, become like the culture around them, as people are canonized, they canonize their view of God. As people are canonized, like if we want to look in a mirror, see, have we been canonized? This is what we need to look for. Have we canonized our view of God? That's what we've seen with Israel. They worship him just like they would worship an idol. Do we see this in ourselves? In other words, have we been shaped by our culture to the point that that begins to shape our view of God? Play that out in a couple of examples for you. Our our culture um, idolizes wealth, success, power, popularity. Have Have we been shaped to simply use God as a means to those same things? There's a reason prosperity theology was born in the prosperous West. Like, have we been shaped by the culture to want the same things that they want? We just use a different mechanism. We use God to get it. And we will worship him and serve him as long as he gives us the things that we feel like we are entitled to. Shades, that's not Christianity. That's a sign that we've been canonized. Shaped not by the kingdom of Christ, but by the entitled culture of our world. Where everything exists in order to give me what I want. And when I don't get what I feel like I deserve, I take to Twitter to express my grievances. And how often do our prayers sound like a Twitter feed? Complaints aimed at manipulating God into giving me what I want. 
or I'll just cancel him by deconstructing my faith. Deconstruction is the religious version of cancel culture. I'll drop my faith, the church, God, because it no longer works for me. Have, have we been shaped by our culture and allowed that to shape our view of God? Another example, uh, our culture has redefined sexuality, gender, sexual ethics. Has that shaped us and led us to reshape our view of God? Have we allowed, or let's take politics. Politics has a very powerful shaping effect in our culture. Have, have we allowed our politics to shape us to the point that we shape God into a Republican or into a Democrat? Shades, have we been shaped by our culture and allowed that to shape our view of God? That's not Christianity. It's paganism. At the heart of paganism, what is paganism? Paganism shapes or makes a god in its own image. Christianity is being shaped or made into God's image. They're, they're mirror opposites. Paganism is, God, you are who I say you are. Christianity is, God, I am who you say I am. Like we just sing about. Is that... Is that the disposition of our hearts? God, as we sing that, God, I am who you say I am. Even if that means I have to change my views on sexuality. Even if that means I have to shift what I believe about caring for creation. Even, even if that means, even if being shaped into your image means that I end up politically homeless, where I don't really fit with any party, but I'm like an alien and a stranger in this world. I know, novel concept, like we've never heard that we're supposed to be that before. But is, it, is the disposition of our heart, God, I, I will worship you, be shaped by you, because I want you. I don't worship you as a means to any other thing. You are the thing, the one, my king, that I, I want shades. What does the way we worship reveal? Does it reveal that we've been shaped by the kingdom of Christ or by our culture? We can confess Christ all we want, but can we say shibboleth? In other words, do we bear the marks that we actually belong to his kingdom? Israel did not. The way they repented, worshiped right here, very much revealed that they had been canonized. They couldn't hide what they'd been shaped by. We see this not only in the way that they worship God, we see it in the very next thing. We see it in the way that they choose leaders. This is the second reality we need to see about canonization. We're holding up the mirror, trying to see, have our hearts been canonized? We blend in with the culture around us. Is that what's shaping us? This is what that canonization looks like right here. Reality number two, canonized people choose canonized leaders. Canonized people choose canonized leaders. This actually flows quite naturally from the first one. Did canonized people canonize their view of God? If I've canonized my view of God, if he looks just like the culture around me, and he is my ultimate leader, of course I'm going to choose secondary leaders that also are canonized. Canonized people choose canonized 
leaders. That's what we see unfold with Israel. Israel was trying to manipulate God in order to get him to save them from the Ammonites. The Ammonites are coming from the east. They're about to invade an area in northern Israel called Gilead. And it's at this moment in our judge cycle where we expect God to raise up a rescuer. For the first time in a major judge cycle, that doesn't happen. So the people move to raise up their own rescuer. And look at the kind of leader they choose. Look at Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and they went out with him. Meet Jephthah. He's just a little bit different from the other rescuers, leaders that we've seen God raise up so far. Uh, God raised up leaders like uh, the weak left-handed Ehud or the timid Barak or scaredy cat Gideon. Leaders that, that God had to make into mighty warriors. So it'd be obvious to everybody whose power was at work. It was actually God's. Jephthah's not like that. Jephthah's a mighty warrior all on his own. And all the details of his life don't remind us of any other leader that God has raised up. They actually remind us of Abimelech. You remember him from Judges 9. Not awesome. He comes from questionable parentage. So he'd been despised and rejected by his brothers. Driven out to the land of Tob. Tob is the Hebrew word for good. Ironically, it's in the good land. Jephthah becomes bad to the bone. He basically forms a gang. It collects worthless fellows around him and they go out. That's a euphemism for raids. He's like a crime boss, gangster, kingpin, whatever word you want to put on it. In other words, he's the kind of man that would make a great Canaanite leader. And yep, that's who God's people choose. Because they aren't God's people. I don't care what they say. The realities of their life, give it away. Right here we see the reality. Canaanized people choose Canaanized leaders. That's what they do in verse 5. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. Notice conspicuously, God is not present here. God's not raising up Jephthah. Israel is acting all on their own. And they're acting pragmatically. I mean, we're very quick to, to justify what they're doing. They're just being practical right here. The Ammonites are coming. We need a leader like theirs because we need to fight fire with fire. Just, just read. Take some time to read through the elders in Jephthah's conversation that unfolds in verses 4 through 11 and watch them. Watch them haggle and wheel and deal with nothing in mind but their own self-interest. 
God gets mentioned very passingly. He's not active right here. His name is simply invoked to ratify the covenant agreement between them. But he has no part. God has no part in making this covenant because it's not his kind of covenant. It's a Canaanite one. It's a Canaanite promise. It's a Canaanite contract. Canaanites are the ones who pledge their loyalty to a person in exchange for political victory. You hear that. Canaanites are the ones who pledge their loyalty to a person in exchange for political victory. Shades do we. What kind of leaders do we seek? Ones that look like Christ or ones that resemble Canaanites? What's Let's uncomfortably press into that for just a minute. Let's talk about inside and outside of the church, the kinds of leaders we seek. And when I say we, I want to be really explicit, okay? I'm not, the we there is not our country, Americans, America. The we there are Christians, the church. Anytime you read the Old Testament, you can never equate the country of Israel with a modern day country. This is God's people, and God still and always has had one people, the church. The we I'm talking about is the church. What kind of leaders do we choose inside and outside of the church? First, let's talk about outside. What kind of political leaders do we seek? Yes, we're American citizens, but we are Christians first. And we are coming up on our next presidential election cycle very quickly. Everybody gets really nervous in the room as soon as I say that. What's Jonathan going to say? I don't care what Jonathan has to say. I care about the way that the truth of God's word presses up against the realities of our lives. Will we justify throwing our hat in the ring with unchristlike characters for the sake of political victory. Israel found themselves in a dire situation. And they used that. This is a politically dire situation. They used that as justification to go after a leader like Jephthah. They needed to be pragmatic about the Ammonite threat that they were facing. They needed to fight fire with fire. Do we use similar arguments to justify our own political choices? Because we got to be we got to be pragmatic. Nothing's more important than political victory right here right now in this moment. It's got to be won at all costs. Oh shades, next week we will see the costs. We will see the cost of such a Canaanite strategy for victory. That kind of Canaanite strategy for victory to ensure the present will end up costing the future. I fear that it will do the same for us. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. Shades, right now, there are younger generations. Our children, teenagers... Young adults, there are younger generations watching those of us who confess Christ, watching to see what the realities of our lives will reveal about that confession. Do our actions reveal 
that we really have faith that Christ is the sovereign leader over all. So we're a people who don't panic no matter the political situation. You want to see that be a reality? Read the book of Daniel, my favorite story. I think it's in Daniel. It's either Daniel 4 or Daniel 5. I can't remember. It's the handwriting on the wall. Watch Daniel stand with crazy confidence as the kingdom that he is a part of collapses around him because he trusts in a God who's sovereign no matter the political situation that he's in. We are a people who do not panic. Will we show that to a younger generation because our trust really is in a Christ who's sovereign? Or will we panic and in doing so think that we need to embrace Canaanite-like saviors? Please hear me as I talk about the shades. Please, please, I want to be very, very clear. I don't want there to be any confusion. I don't want to have 50 requests for lunches this week. I'll go to lunch with you. I will, just not all of you at the same time. I am not, in everything that I've just said, I am not saying that you cannot vote for the political party that you most support. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is what does the way that you vote look like? What does it reveal? Do you speak about your politics, your candidate, your party, your platforms in a way that shows your ultimate loyalty is to Christ and he's the only one that gets carte blanche rule over your life? Are are you willing to humbly own the things about your party and its platform or your candidate, the things that don't align with the... Christ and his kingdom, are you willing to own that and say there are things about this party, this candidate that I'm voting for that do not, absolutely do not align with Christ and his kingdom? Are you willing to critique those things in a way that points people to the only king you will serve unreservedly? Jesus. Will we choose lead? You should be able to critique your own political party. If you can't, you have reason to question whether you belong to the kingdom of Christ or have sold your heart to a different king and kingdom. The kingdom of Christ cannot be equated with any political party or any kingdom of this world. Will we choose leaders in a way that reveals the one that we worship? In other words, can we say shibboleth? show with our vote that we belong to Christ in his kingdom, not to Canaanite culture. This doesn't just apply to how we choose leaders outside of the church, but inside as well. What kind of leaders do we desire? When we look at Christian culture in the West on the whole, what kind of pastors do Christians choose? Ones that look like Christ or ones that look a little bit more Canaanite? Shades, does, I say this with a broken heart. Does not the modern vision of a pastor look a heck of a lot more like a social media influencer than a servant who shares in the sufferings of Christ? Do, do we not gravitate towards leaders that, that look arrogantly powerful, materially successful, talented, entertaining, 
When those are the types of leaders we seek shades, is it any wonder that the church in the West has a massive problem, a current crisis with abusive leadership? I, I, I remember, I, I talked to my wife not too long ago through tears, and I told her, I don't know how anyone can ever trust me as a pastor. I don't know. Not in this cultural climate. I don't know. I wouldn't trust a pastor. Shades, is it any wonder that we've got the problem we do with abusive leadership when the type of leadership we value looks nothing like Christ? What does that reveal about us? We can confess Christ all day long, but the reality is canonized people choose canonized leaders. The church chooses the same kind of leaders as the culture because the church has been shaped by the culture and constantly trying to play catch up with the culture. And you cannot hide what you have been shaped by, not ultimately. We may claim to be the people of Christ, but what are the realities of our lives reveal about that confession? Can we say, Shibboleth? Do we bear the marks of belonging to the kingdom of Christ like we claim to? Shades, this is the depths. This is the depths of the darkness that Judges has led us to. This is the warning of how God's people spiral down into darkness. And right here, at the depths, at the nadar of the warning, Right here, where we see the warning of total rebellion and the total wrath that it deserves, it's right here that we get the witness to total grace. Look back. Look back up to chapter 10. Look back up to chapter 10 and verse 16. I ignored this earlier. Look back up at it. Right in the midst of Israel's total rebellion, right after God has spoken his word of total wrath, when he says, I'm going to save you no more, right after that, we read at the end of verse 16, and the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. He got tired of seeing his people suffer. This is the compassion of the Lord. It grows impatient with the sufferings of his people. It's like he can't help himself. His compassion is welling up in him because of the truth that is explicated by Isaiah 63 and verse 9. Isaiah 63 and verse 9 says that in all God's people affliction, he was afflicted with them. And in his pity, he redeemed them. Do you feel, do you feel right here? Right here, we get verse 13, I will save you no more. We get verse 16, God's growing impatient over the suffering of his people. Do you, do you feel the tension in the very heart of God? His, his just wrath that should be poured out on sin and his compassion for sinners. Do, do you feel that tension in God's heart which does get poured out in his own blood upon the cross? On the cross, God's just wrath was poured out upon sin and simultaneously his compassion was poured out towards sinners because he poured out his wrath upon himself. He took our place while we were busy searching for Canaanite-like saviors 
Searching for our mighty warrior? He, God himself, came. Christ Jesus, our Savior, the warrior who was mighty through weakness. Jesus, who was despised and rejected from the moment of his questionable birth. Jesus is the Savior that we need, not a Jephthah. Jesus, the Christ, the one who is more opposite from a Canaanite. than He's the most opposite from a Canaanite that you can get. And the darkness of Judges 10 to 12 shines a light on him. Do you belong to him? Do you belong to him? You can tell. Hold up this mirror of Judges 10 to 12, and you can tell. If you belong to Christ, it will show up in how you view him. Do you view him as a means to some other thing, or do you view him as the one you want even if you lose everything? Do you belong to him? You can tell. It'll show up in the leaders that you're attracted to. Leaders who reflect Christ or leaders who are more Canaanite. Shades. Do we belong to Jesus? Do, do we bear the marks of his kingdom or our culture? In other words, can we say Shibboleth?